We're going to start off today with something that everybody loves, a surprise quiz. Who in the room can name this character? Bill Gates. Everybody, right? Okay, how about this one? Warren Buffett. That's right. I believe it's pronounced buffet. Um, this guy? Maybe, maybe fewer people. Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, I believe. How about this guy? Old man. <laughs> Easy. There's some of us in this room. This is Amancio Ortega. Uh, not as well known as the others. And then finally, this last one, he's 12. That, of course, is Mark Zuckerberg. These are the five richest people in the world in 2017, according to Forbes magazine. And I'm guessing that most of us in the room find it hard to even imagine what it would be like to live with this sort of money, this sort of fame, except for that fourth guy who nobody knows. But the rest of us, uh, the rest of them are all famous and rich and powerful well, right now we are in this book uh, of James, walking through the, the biblical book of James. And James has a whole lot to say to these people and about these people. But frankly, a whole lot to say to us as well, because you might be surprised how much we actually have in common with these five men. Well, last week he we kicked off this series that we're simply calling James. I wanted to call it the book of Jim, but nobody liked that <laughs> idea, strangely. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's some at the front uh, here on the table on the back. The Bible is at the very center of all we want to be and all we want to do. It's the the standard by which we believe we should live. And so if you don't have one, we'd love to give one to you. So we're in James, and there's a number of things that are really unique about this book of James. This book focuses on ethics more than any other book in the New Testament, sort of the how we should live in response to our faith. This is the first and oldest book in the New Testament. It's the earliest picture we have of the New Testament church. It was written before the Gospels. It was written before any of the letters and epistles. It was written before Paul even began doing ministry. It's as old as it gets in the New Testament. It was written by James, who's a brother of Jesus. Andy Stanley asked the question, what would it take for your brother to convince you that you were the son of God? Right? Like, you're right, and I'm the Pope. Well, you could be if you played your card right, said Jesus. Corny joke. James, as the brother of Jesus and the son of Mary and Joseph, is a Jew. And he's writing to persecuted Jewish Christians who have been distributed throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. They've they've been distributed as refugees to escape persecution, being imprisoned and killed for their faith. And to those people, he says, you must rethink religion, primarily how you live this out. And one of the main messages that James has for this Jewish Christian audience is their faith can't just be head knowledge. If they just believe the right things, but don't actually put it into action, then their faith is dead and worthless. But if you remember, I mean, what's remarkable about that for me is that he's writing to these people who've given up just about everything for their faith, who've been put into, into refugee status for their faith. And he's saying, if you don't live it out more in some different significant way. And so we need to dive into that. There's so much that we can glean from this book, but there's also a lot about this book that's very challenging to us. Who it was written to in the context in which it was written is very different than our context. This book was written uh, to the very uh, earliest Christians, helping them because they were persecuted and helping them to understand how to live as a minority group in a culture that was largely very antagonistic towards Christianity. Well, that's very different than our context. Here we are 2,000 years later living as Christians 
And we've built up all kinds of religious traditions, and we are, for the most part, not persecuted for our faith. We aren't the minority culturally or religiously. In fact, we live in a nation that, for most of its 200 years of history, has seen itself as a Christian nation. So this is a very different audience that this is being written to. And we need to do the very real work of figuring out how does this message that James has for this original Jewish audience apply to our lives and our context today. Last week, we looked at most of, or all of chapter 1, and then the second half of chapter 2 of James. And what some of you may have noticed is that I intentionally skipped over the first half of chapter 2, because frankly, James talks about a subject that's not really polite in mixed company. He talked about money, the wealthy, and the poor. And that's something that's just not acceptable in our culture to talk about. We're pretty comfortable talking about lots of subjects like politics, religion, uh, marital intimacy. We have kids present, so I'll call it marital intimacy. <laughs> but talking about money is taboo. Emily, Emily Post, back in 1922, wrote, Only a vulgarian talks about how much this or that cost him. A well-bred man intensely dislikes the mention of money and never speaks of it out of business hours if he can avoid it. And yet James goes there immediately. He doesn't seem at all concerned about whether or not it's polite. He says you can't just believe the right things. You have to put your faith into action. He starts to define or perhaps redefine for them what true, pure, genuine religion looks like. And then he contrasts that, as we looked at last week, against a counterfeit, fake, false, empty, worthless religion. Chapter 1, as you remember from last week, ended this way. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's how he ends. And then the very next chapter, the very next verse, the very next illustration he uses is money. Chapter 2, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you could stand over there or I'll sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? The very first example of what James uses to illustrate what he means is this issue of the relationship between the rich and the poor, between the powerful and the powerless, between the haves and the have-nots. And he says the choices that we make demonstrate, they show the condition of our heart. He says that throughout scripture, we see this clear picture of a God who's clearly demonstrated that he has a very special place in his heart for the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, the foreigner, the outsider, the least of these. James then echoes the word of Jesus, of words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Continuing in the next verse, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, James says, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones that are slandered Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? 
Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal laws found in scriptures, love your neighbors yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. I think it's worth pausing here and noting that, that James never says having money is bad or being poor is good. Remember that James is writing to a group who'd lost most everything. These are persecuted Christians who are living as refugees and have almost nothing. He's speaking to a group that is by and large the poor. And he's saying to them that their primary concern is their response to the circumstances they've been put into. You remember last week in chapter one, he said, when you face very real injustices, when you face persecution, don't in response, get angry because that sort of anger never accomplishes the righteousness that God desires. Instead, he points to love, right? Well, here, some of the rich and the powerful, perhaps some of the very people who have been persecuting the Jewish church are starting to come into their meetings and come into their worship services. And in response, these Jewish believers who are down and out and poor and persecuted are giving these people, some of the people that gave them persecution in the first place, these seats of honor and giving them uh, the fancy places, at least in part because these people represent power. They represent wealth. They represent an opportunity maybe to get ahead and to get some of that power and some of that wealth. And James needs to be saying, Favoring the rich and the powerful means that you probably have a questionable, he says, evil motive. And favoring them over the poor and the powerless, it's wrong. Again, James doesn't worry about being polite. He doesn't worry about being, you know, politically correct. He simply calls it out. He says, that's evil. That's sin. In fact, he goes so far as to compare that sin to murder and adultery. He's saying it's on that sort of level. And then he goes a step further even. And for those of us for whom, you know, we've grown up in and around the church, these are chilling words, words that, you know, for those of us who believe that, you know, if you pray the right prayer and you write checks to church and you go to church enough, then, then you sort of met the minimum requirements for salvation. Like that, that's, that's the minimum entrance requirements. And then if you do any good works, that's sort of extra credit. Like that's how the economy of God works. And to that, James speaks these words. So whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Those should cause us to pause, right? I mean, that, that's a powerful and disturbing phrase. You will be judged by the law that sets you free. He's defined Jesus as the law that sets us free. And so he's saying this covenant who's been realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ has set you free. But if you fail to in turn, use that freedom to set others free, to bring others in, to have them experience the kingdom, then you'll be judged by that same law. And there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. James is once again echoing the words of his brother, Jesus words that he had heard not that many years earlier as Jesus was preaching the sermon on the Mount words that Jesus used to describe what it's going to be like in the final judgment. When Jesus comes back to earth, when the kingdom of God comes finally and fully on earth as it is in heaven, this thing that we pray for regularly. These are some of my least favorite words in the new Testament, frankly, because they strike to the bone. 
Here's what it says. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal judgment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. What's the standard that Jesus presents here? I will, does he say, you know, I will gather all the nations and those who prayed the right prayer. Those who were baptized the right way. Those who wrote checks to the church. Those who figured out all my theological puzzles. No. The standard that Jesus presents and that James is reiterating is that our actions will be the evidence before God and before Jesus of a life truly surrendered or not. Of a heart that's fully given to God or not. Of a faith that's actually real and has changed the way we live or hasn't. If you don't act on it, James says, you don't actually believe it. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, what you do speaks so loudly that cannot hear what you say. Our actions matter. <clears throat> James ends his book with a series of warnings to not be proud, to not judge others, to not be self-reliant and arrogant. And then his last warning again is to this relationship of the rich and the poor. Let's read. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure that you've hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen... Hear the cries of the field workers whom you've cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. 
Now, again, I want to be careful here. I, James is not speaking to all rich people throughout all of history and all of time. He's speaking to a very specific group of people, a very specific context. And he's saying it's not bad to be rich and it's not good to be poor. Just like earlier, he's primarily concerned with these people. In this case, the rich have done in the circumstances into which they find themselves. Do in response to the situation that they've been given. To the poor, he said, don't favor the rich to try to make yourself ahead. But then he has a very different message for the rich. He uses words like, the very wealth you were counting on, this corroded treasure, and you have cheated, and luxury, you've lived in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You've condemned, condemned and killed innocent people. For James, it's not that they have wealth that's the issue. It's how they've used that wealth, how they got that wealth, What they've done with that wealth, they've hoarded it and they've spent it on their own pleasures exclusively. In fact, that wealth was more important to them than the injustices it caused to others. James is saying, you've been given so much, but you've used it to try to get more. You've oppressed the poor. You've taken advantage of people. You've lived in luxury without any concern for the field workers and the injustices and the suffering that they experience as a result of your luxurious living. So you can store up all these treasures and wealth. You can be secure and powerful and protected. But that very wealth that you've stored up is going to be evidence that your faith was garbage. That you didn't care about the things that matter to God. That you didn't care about the poor. Not only did you not care for them, your lifestyle actually made things worse for them. You've relied on your wealth and you should have relied on God. And you've used your wealth to accomplish your own purposes, not God's. And so for both the rich and the poor, James seems to be presenting this this understanding that what we do in response to the situations in which we find ourselves matters. It's not that it's good to be rich or that it's good to be poor or bad either way. It's what we do with what we've been given So I'm curious, as I've been talking about these two different groups today, as I've been reading through these different passages of the rich and the poor and James' admonitions to each of them, have you found yourself identifying with one group more than the other? Not when you think about it, uh, but just as I was reading them, did you identify with one group more than the other? Maybe not, maybe neither. I think for those of us today who are hearing this message, it does sound like it's 2,000 years old, like we're pretty far removed from these truths. And it's easy to not see ourselves in the passage to kind of go like, Hey, that was written 2000 years ago into a very different context. And I don't see how it applies to my life to say, for instance, I'm not poor, uh, but I guess I'm not really rich either. I mean, I'm just trying to make my mortgage payments and pay for my cars and save some for my kids and put some in retirement. I'm certainly not rich. And besides, I don't even have any fields, much less field workers that I've oppressed. I've got a 401k but I don't have any gold or silver. I've almost never killed anyone. (laughs) So I I get that. I think compared to the lifestyle we see on, you know, TV and in the movies, the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, we probably aren't in this room, mostly rich. But I think if you take that lens and you turn it outside, outside of our first world context, you get a very different picture. Did you know, for instance, that more than a billion people in this world live on less than a dollar a day. 
seeing a lot of nods. Maybe you know that. In 2008, the UN published an article that determined that the net worth of the wealthiest 50% of households in the world was $2,138. And the top 10% wealthiest households in the world, that cutoff was $61,000. So if your net worth, in other words, the, the sum of everything you own, your cars and your home and your mortgage and your investments and your savings and all those things, if it's worth more than $2,138, you're in the top half of the wealthiest people in the world. And if it's more than 61000 which I'm guessing it is for many of us in this room, then you're in the top 10% richest people in the whole world. According to the Federal Reserve, the median American family had 81,000 net worth. That means like the person right in the middle. And the average American household, this seems crazy, but the average American household had $535,000 in net worth. Now, I think, you know, Bill Gates is maybe bumping the curve on that one a little bit. I mean, that's not me. Maybe it's you. Um, But the point is, we're a wealthy nation. The... New York Times says the typical person in the bottom 5% of American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. That's amazing. Our poorest are richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. This week, Becca Backman, our outreach director, sent me a video that, that had been sent to her. Uh, it had been uploaded just in the last week uh, by Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision. And this video is, is kind of low quality, frankly. I think they shot it on a phone camera and the audio is not that great. But he was in a hurry to get out the word about an impending crisis that's happening in East Africa. And I'm ashamed to say that I, I listen to public radio all the time. I listen to the news. I'm an in-touch you know, person. And I hadn't heard about this. Let's watch this video together. You know, it was just about a year ago that I planned to take a trip to Kenya. But when I planned the trip, I didn't realize that they would be in the midst of a tremendous famine that's coming on. Um, So we changed our itinerary this week so that I could go up to northern Kenya on the South Sudan border uh, to see what the drought, the conflict, and the hunger uh, are doing to the people that live here. And I have to say, in my 19 years at World Vision, this is some of the toughest stuff I've had to see. You have to understand that the people who live in this region are pastoralists. They, they herd and, and, and raise animals. And uh, what's happened because of repeated failure of the rains and droughts, as well as the conflict in South Sudan and Somalia, the Horn of Africa and East Africa is in the midst of uh, a tremendous drought and oncoming famine. And so what happened uh, here was that the animals died first because there was no pasture land and there was no uh, water for the animals to drink. And as the people here say, that once the animals die, the people die next. So this is a, a really grim situation here. World Vision is responding, but we need many more resources to mobilize a response and scale it up uh, in a way that could cover more of this region. We're doing food distributions through the World Food Program. We're working with the county government here, who is also trying to respond. So it's a pretty grim situation here. And so I want to, first of all, thank all of you that have already responded to this crisis. The World Health Organization is saying that this famine is going to be far bigger than the 1984 famine, and they estimate more than 20 million people are at risk. And even now, 3.5 million children are malnourished and on the verge of starvation. Uh, I don't always feel helpless as, as the World Vision president. 
but I'm feeling kind of helpless right now. Please pray for these people. Pray that we can mobilize resources. Pray that we can get government grants, World Food Program grants. Pray that we can find a way to respond uh, to this terrible, terrible human suffering that we're seeing here. God bless you, and thank you for all you're doing, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. If you've been at ECC for any amount of time, you've heard Chris use the phrase unsulated or removing the insulation so we touch the wire. That's what this man has done. He's seen it firsthand and has changed the whole trajectory of his life. It's so easy to not feel wealthy in our culture, but then you see a video like this. I think about the access that I have to food and to water, to electricity, to medicine. I think the fact that one of our chores in our house is to every couple of weeks go through the fridge and throw out all the food that we never had a chance to get to and that is spoiled. And I know I'm not alone in that. The, the National Resources Defense Council says the average American tosses about 25% of the food and beverages purchased for a family of four, the money wasted could total from 1365 to $2,275, right around $2,000. I think it's worth noting that $2,000 is exactly the amount that would define you as the 50% richest family in the country, and that is what we're throwing away in food. Most of us in this room statistically are in the wealthiest 10% of the world. And as crazy as it sounds, when you look at our lifestyle and you look at our homes, and you look at the access we have to these, these fundamental things, our lives actually look a lot more like Bill Gates than they look like the people in that video. And we don't see it from our perspective, maybe, but if you ask someone from that video to come in and compare our lifestyle with the lifestyle of the rich, I think they'd make the connection. It's easy in our culture to feel insulated from this. 20 million people are in risk and I didn't know about it. So maybe when we look at James written 2000 years ago into a different culture and a different group and a different context, we need to do the work to intentionally lean into those characters and ask some tough questions. In what ways are we like the rich? In which ways are we like the poor in James's comparison? And what can we learn from that and, and do that in somehow that, in a way that isn't just beating ourselves up. You know, it's easy to, to just kind of like, you're bad. We're rich people and you're all bad. How do we do it in a way that, that, that doesn't beat ourselves up, but yet also doesn't let ourselves off the hook too quickly? How do we do it in a way that's not just self-loathing, but also doesn't allow us to just stay content with the status quo and the way that things are in what ways are we like the rich that he's describing and warning, living for our comfort and for our needs and oblivious to the pain and the injustice that's all around us and that sometimes is even caused by the luxury in which we live? Maybe we've been oblivious up until this point, but we can't remain there. I don't think we can claim ignorance before Jesus when he's separating the sheep from the goats. I'm not suggesting, and I don't think James is suggesting that being rich is in and of itself bad. I want to make that really, really clear. This isn't to guilt. He says it's what you do with it. And maybe so we maybe need to ask some tough questions about our lifestyle. Questions like, how do the choices that I make with the wealth that I have, which from a global standard is huge, how do those choices reflect the heart of God? 
And how do they reflect my own desires and securities and needs and wants? How much of our wealth goes to satisfying our every desire, as James says? I was talking with Jeff Olson, who's the pastor of Catalyst Covenant Church this week. And he said, I, I, I have a hard time believing the statistic, but you can blame him. He said that the average American household spends 2.2% of their annual budget on beer. And that the same household spends about 1.2%, 1.4% of their annual budget on giving to charitable causes, including church, world vision, the poor, all of these different really important things, including all the junk that we drop off at Goodwill and write off. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with beer. I'm not even saying that 2.2% of your family's budget shouldn't go to beer. What I'm saying is, if your beer budget is almost twice your giving to the poor and the church and the various other really good causes, all combined budget, then maybe it's time to re-examine your budget. Maybe it's time to re-examine your values. Maybe it's time to re-examine the book of James. I think another tough question that I am very reluctant to ask, but that we have to ask is what are the modern day equivalents to the field workers that James described the field workers whose cries reach the Lord of heaven's armies. My son, Ian, this last year did a school project, a presentation where he could choose whatever subject he wanted. And he chose uh, human slavery and, and human trafficking. And it was very illuminating for me as I heard him practice that speech to me over and over Again, according to slaveryfootprint.org, which is a great website you should check out, there are 27 million slaves worldwide. That's the combined population of Australia and New Zealand. And, and that, that those slaves are used to produce the products that we use every single day. It's impossible for most consumers to even know what products we use that have been made by slave hands. The U S department of labor published this graph that I thought was really interesting listing 139 goods from 75 countries for a total of 379 line items. And these aren't obscure things. These are things like sugar cane, cotton, coffee, tobacco, cattle, bricks, garments, textiles, footwear. It's companies that we use every single day, like the Gap and Nike and Adidas and H&M. These companies that employ these slave laborers somewhere along the lines in their production. Our food. A McClatchy investigation in 2001 revealed that 43% of the world's cocoa beans, the raw materials making chocolate, 43% of that is harvested by boys who were sold or tricked into slavery in small farms in West Africa. It's in our electronics. It's in our cosmetics. It's everywhere. Every aspect of our life is touched by this. And that could be absolutely debilitating. I was talking to, to, to Josh Crenshaw after the service who just, the first service who just returned from Africa. And he said, you know, it's taken him weeks to get back into like understanding our way of life, having come just back from Africa. And he said, but within a month, I know that I'll just be used to it again. And how do we live in that heightened awareness and not lose our sensitivity how do we become live wire touchers? How do we remove the insulation? The same website that I just told you about has an assessment that you can take. It only takes a few minutes, and I did it, that basically asks you some basic questions about your household, basic things that you own and that you've purchased and that are a regular rhythm of your day. And then it gives you back a number of the number of slaves that were employed for the products that you have in your home. And so I did this. It took just a few minutes. 
And it asked me how many televisions I had, how many smartphones I have, how many cosmetics I have, what food I have. And at the end, it spit out a number. It said that my lifestyle employs about 92 slaves. That's a number that I can't be comfortable with. And so even if I reduce that, I say, okay, well, you know what? That's just being hyperbolic. That's just overstating it. Even if we cut that in half, 45, is that a number I'm comfortable with? What number of slaves would I be comfortable with in order to enjoy the luxuries that I enjoy in my life? I think that's a question we have to ask. The Super Bowl is coming, and I'm excited. It's going to be so much fun, and it's so cool that we finally have this thing coming to our city, and it's going to be amazing, and it's great. It's going to bring all this prosperity and wealth and all these different things. But it's been well documented. It's going to bring a whole lot of dark stuff, too, a whole lot of human trafficking, too. Now, I'm not saying that the Super Bowl is bad or the football is bad. I love both of those things. Don't write me emails. (laughs) But I think we have to be aware that our lifestyle, our luxury, our pursuit of sport has a dark side that we need to be active in combating. Like I said, this is the tip of the, the iceberg. It can be so overwhelming and it's uncomfortable to face that our spending, our lifestyle has to be examined. I'd rather not. I think we have to start asking these tough questions and probing more deeply into this. We can't remain insulated from the world around us. Just like in James, for us, God's primary concern is what we do in response to the situations in which he has placed us, the situations in which we exist. What will we do with what we've been given to free those who are in bondage, proclaim good news to the prisoner, bring justice to the oppressed, support the least. And if our faith is real, it needs to, it must shape our spending, our giving, our serving, our caring. It must shape our schedules, our politics, our prayer life, our understanding of what it means to live in a wealthy consumeristic society. Can I afford it? Can't be the only question we ask when we shop. We have to ask other questions. And there are so many resources that you can find. I printed this out from the Department of Labor. Uh, just go to their website, Department of Labor. And it's just a simple guide of some first step kinds of things that you can do to start shopping better, to make sure that the choices that we're making to meet the needs of our family. Josh and I talked about the fact that when I buy a banana, I'm only thinking about the fact that it's cheap and it's good protein for my kids and good nourishment for my kids. There's a lot more to think about. It's not protein. You got me. <laughs> Potassium is what I meant to say. There are so many other questions that we need to be asking. <laughs> this fall, we're going to be looking at a, a whole series on this called Unsolated. We're basically we're looking at how do we live lives that are staying in touch and don't become hardened and don't become you know, immune to the hardships that are around us. And then how do we live lives that actually speak into that and help to correct that and bring Christ's hope into this world? But there are so many opportunities right now that you can be involved in. This week, uh, Becca sent out uh, the ECC mail. I don't know how many of you subscribe to that, but it goes out every week as an email. And as I was reading through it this week, I thought there's so many things that we're doing right now. Basically, this entire ECC mail are examples of how we can do this practically. Things like the, the backpack drive that Chris talked about that are bringing, helping to bring literacy and resources to families in needs and kids in needs so that they can actually experience development. Things like identifying Tom and Mary Lackner and saying, hey, here's a couple, a family that has blessed us so richly over the years. Let's bless them in their time of need. The Shoreview Community Center is one of the things that she listed. They have been such an amazing blessing to us. And now they're asking if we can provide volunteers so that for a slice of Shoreview, uh, they can be a, we can be a blessing to our community. 
These are just really practical nuts and bolts ways that we can live this out. The team that was in wars last week and the team that left with Ace in the City yesterday to go down and continue that long-term relationship of building it into our lives. She ended the, the email this way, and I'll end with this. She said, more than anything, I hope that your life becomes missional. Not only moments of one-time service, but you go about your days at work, home, the grocery store, soccer games, and see the moments and opportunities that are, that are ours. If we will set aside our agendas, prioritize our neighbors and shine the light of Jesus, we can make a difference in our community and in our world. There's no better time to start than today. So powerful words. We have the opportunities all around us. And part of our job that we'll continue to try to faithfully do is to simply present those ideas to you. Not so that we can be overwhelmed and guilty, but that you know these are opportunities where you can live out these words of Christ, these words of James. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, we see these images um, from these videos and, and these statistics. And um, it's easy to have our heartstrings, our heartstrings tugged. Um, and yet it's also easy for us to grow immune, to be desensitized to this message. God, please help us to not have that be a reality. Help us to continue to, to, in increasing ways, see the very real needs that are all around us in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and around the world. God, help us to continue to use partnerships, like the partnership we have with uh, the Covenant World Relief, uh, where when we give to ECC, we are giving to, to what you are doing through uh, this Covenant World Relief, God. Use those, those sorts of resources powerfully. But God, then help us to move beyond simply giving to acting, to touching the wire ourselves. Help us to figure out how to do that and to do it boldly. Transform us into your likeness, we ask, we pray, so that we might be among the sheep. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.